Welcome to another edition of the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. In this episode, it's going to focus on praise athletes to never win a championship. That's right, you'll be surprised at some of the names that are on this list, but their greatness still speaks volume for itself. So coming up on the next episode of the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, the greatest athletes to never win a championship. That's all coming up next on A-Train Sports Talk Podcast with conductor Anthony Smith. So stay tuned. That show is coming up next. Also, I'm going to be looking at this Greg Marshall situation in Wichita State. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go ahead and start with that first. Then we'll get into our greatest athletes to never win a championship. Facing more allegations, Greg Marshall's run as an elite college basketball coach appears to be over. If you were Greg Marshall, hunkered down in the metaphorical castle he's built at Wichita State while the entire narrative of his career collapses around him, you would almost certainly be asking, why now? Why are former players at not just one, but two schools publicly accusing him of abusive behavior as outlined in new reporting Tuesday in The Athletic about Marshall's time at Winthrop. Why is the coaching style that brought him from obscurity to a Final Four and was rewarded with wealth beyond belief suddenly inappropriate and over the line? Why is the mob only coming for him now after 22 years as a college head coach? It must be stunning and confusing to Marshall to see his treatment of players exposed now after dragging Winthrop to the NCAA tournament seven times in nine years and then turning Wichita State into a national brand, churning out a lot of good basketball players and good citizens along the way. But even if Marshall hasn't changed, the rest of us have, and if there's corroboration to the growing pile of allegations, including a damning account initially published October 9 by Stadium, Wichita State would be foolish to keep him, if only because he can no longer credibly run a program in 2020. Forget for a moment that his alleged behavior is just wrong. Choking an assistant, racially charged taunts toward players, language so demeaning that former players still resent him years later, having it exposed to the public will crippled his credibility to recruit, to relate, to lead. And no amount of university-level enablement, support from billionaire booster Charles Coke, or ambiguity resulting from an investigation can make that stain go away. In that sense, calling for Marshall to be fired is either too obvious or too redundant. Even if he keeps his job, and the fact that Wichita State hasn't even suspended him yet suggests He'll get the kid glove treatment to the bitter end. His ability to do it effectively is already done. Who would knowingly send their son to play for a coach who, according to former Winthrop players who spoke with the athletic, asked a player if he was stupid or just retarded? Who would knowingly send their son to play for a coach who told a player he'd send him back to Africa or frequently used a derogatory term? 
for female anatomy to address players. That's not what anyone should want their children to endure, and it's certainly not coaching. But maybe to Marshall, it was. Try to look at it through his eyes. You're talking about somebody who started as an under-talented, undersized player at Randolph Mason College in the early 1980s, who only stood out because of his tenacity and his temper. In fact, a 2012 profile of Marshall in the Wichita Eagle detailed his ability to get under the skin of his teammates to the point where they sometimes came to blows and a childhood where he always seemed like he had something to prove. For Marshall, those traits never failed to advance his career. Maybe the proverbial chip on the shoulder <clears throat> that helped him realize every bit of his own basketball ability and separated him from the scores of anonymous coaches who never made it big was intentionally woven into his own coaching philosophy. Or maybe he's just a dude with anger management problems that no administrator ever had the guts to address with him. Colleges in particular tend to conveniently ignore those kinds of problems when the winds are coming and they can get away with it for the most part because the line between accountability and abuse is often thin or vague enough to ignore. But little by little, that line has moved over the years. Not just because it's a better, healthier way to treat people, and college athletes in particular, but because coaching through fear is not as effective as it once was. Just look at the last three coaches in college basketball to win national titles. Tony Bennett, Jay Wright, Roy Williams. These are not your stereotypical raving lunatics on the sidelines. Even in college football, the model has moved away from the Bear Bryant wannabes and towards someone like Clemson's Dabo Sweeney, who works tirelessly to create a positive culture that elite players want to be part of. If Bobby Knight were coming up in coaching today, he would have either figured out how to control his worst impulses or he would have never made it. But at least Knight, for all his faults, had a lot of former players willing to stand up for him. Where has that support been for Marshall over the last 11 days since the numerous accusations of bullying behavior came to light? Though Marshall has denied being demeaning or abusive, and some former players have said his coaching style helped them, there hasn't been a peep from Fred Van Vliet, Ron Baker, or Landry Shamit, the three biggest names from his Wichita State tenure. Maybe Marshall is such a towering figure at Wichita State that he will be allowed to ride this out, pledge to do better, and try to hit the reset button on a program that has been spinning out of control since seven players left via transfer after last season. In college sports, no amount of craviness can really surprise us anymore. But for all intents and purposes, Marshall's run as one of college basketball's most fascinating figures is over. Why now? Because the sad reality in college sports is you can get away with exactly the amount of trouble you're worth. Until his former players started speaking up, Marshall was worth it. Just like that, he's not. Even if Wichita State doesn't realize it over the next few days, they will soon enough. And there you have that story on Greg Marshall, Wichita State. Me being here in the city, I'm looking at this like, hopefully this is just a bad nightmare that we can wake up and none of this has happened. But I am wondering why come we haven't heard nothing from Fred Van Vliet, Ron Baker, Landry Shamit. This story was on October 20th out of USA Today. Contributing writer was Dan Wolken, USA Today. So I have to give credit where credit is due. One person I hope to get on my podcast soon, and maybe we can talk about this. Someone I know that's close to the program. He's also known as the 
B-O-S or B-O-T-S, however you want to look at it. He's been behind the mics doing games for over 30 years. And his voice hasn't changed a bit. He sound, still sounds like he's in his early 30s. Hopefully to get the one and only, the legendary Mike Kennedy on. Maybe we can discuss some of this or what his thoughts are. Because I'm pretty sure there's probably only so much he can say his own self. But hopefully we can reach out and get Mike Kennedy on. This weekend would be great if possible. But we will work on that. But I will be back with the stories I said I would dive into. The greatest athletes never to win championships. So stay tuned. That's coming up next on A Transport Stock Podcast. So we're back for another segment, and for sure that first segment was interesting. And one of the things I would like to ask before I move on, can't help but to wonder, if Wichita State has to part ways, and you hope that they don't do it like abruptly, because you wonder who on that staff is credible enough to be the interim coach. You could get this team to play and get them over the hump. Because potentially, even though they, Wichita State is predicted, but seventh in an 11 team conference, I see with Greg Marshall on that sideline, this is a 20 plus win season. I don't know if you get that. If you name someone on an interim basis. And then after the season, you look for a new coach or you start the process right now. What would some of the names be that come to mind? I know some may say Chris Jans, some may say Steve Forbes. Those are two of the names that come to mind right offhand because of their ties to Wichita State. Now, Chris Jans, he's had some away from court issues that <clears throat> that led to the loss of his head coaching job, which also which also got him back on the bench at Wichita State briefly until he found him another job. And the reason I mention these two names because these were guys that Marshall could trust with his team. These were his right-hand, well, right and left-hand men. So could you trust either one of them with the program to keep what has been built, to keep it going? That is the question. If Wichita State had to part ways, do you make him serve a suspension as a form of punishment? I'm pretty sure Darren Boatwright and staff will do what they deem is necessary. So now let's move right along with a very intriguing story. One I find of interest and intrigue. Because Clayton Kershaw would have almost been on this list. If I think had Dodgers not won the World Series, there's a possibility you never know when they may get that chance to play again. But with most of the greatest athletes in team sports, from Bill Russell to LeBron James, from Johnny Bench to David Ortiz, from Walker Payton to Peyton Manning, and from Bobby Orr to Sidney Crosby. We have memories from championship games and series that offer verification of their excellence. They have rings they can flash when anyone wonders what they accomplished. Not everyone is so fortunate. Even among the blessed. 
Some of the best athletes in the history of American team sports never win at all. Some of them never claimed that close, as Clayton Kershaw tries to win his first World Series with the Los Angeles Dodgers after mystifying regular season hitters for more than a decade, as Chris Paul begins another attempt to at least find its way to the NBA Finals. All surely are cognizant that they could wind up as one of those all-time greats whose career is accompanied by an asterisk. Never won the big one. Well, you can no longer say that about Clayton Kershaw. Sporting news list of 25 greatest players in those four majors who did not manage to achieve a championship did not consider those who won national championships in their sports at the college level. You can say Patrick Ewing never won at all. And you may be a Knicks fan who waited years for it to happen. But we all saw him celebrate with George with the Georgetown Hoyas at the 1984 NCAA Final Four. So here are the guys that never had that chance. Nap Lahoy, 21 seasons, World Series appearance, none. Closest call, Cleveland Naps went 1964-1908 and finished a first half game, finished a half game behind first place Detroit. Performing under pressure as the Naps were in the pennant race with the Tigers, Lahoy batted 321 with an 840 OPS and scored 24 runs, his highest total for many for any month that season. Overview: Lahoy now not only was a star player who ranks 13th in hits with 3,252. He also was a manager for all or part or part six of his seasons in Cleveland, including the team that almost reached the World Series. In his three years as a full-time player manager, the Naps won 89, 85, and 90 games. In that 1908 season, the Naps actually had the same number of wins as Detroit, but the Tigers completed one fewer game and thus had one fewer defeat. They were allowed to stand as champions of the American League. Jerome Ingenla, Ingenla. Seasons 21, Stanley Cup appearances, 2004. Closest call, Calgary Flames lost the 2004 Stanley Cup Finalto, Cup Finalto. Tampa Bay in seven games, falling two to one in game seven. Performing under pressure. Ngingla led the Flames with five points and three goals in the Stanley Cup final and was a plus three for the series. Calgary had a three two series lead going into game six at home and was tied 2-2 two two after three periods. But Ngingla had a quiet game with only two shots, and the Flames lost in overtime. The overview, remaining in Calgary for nearly his entire career meant making only six trips to the playoffs before he was traded at age 35 to Pittsburgh to try to stack their team for a playoff run. And he did score 12 points in 15 playoff games, but he played out of position with the Penguins, and they faded badly in the Eastern Conference Finals and were swept by Boston. He had another shot with the Bruins a year later, but that team lost the second-round series in seven games. Ngingla finished his career in 2017 with 525 goals and 1,095 Number 23 on this list, Tracy McGrady, 16 seasons, NBA appearances, NBA final appearances, 2013. Closest call, San Antonio Spurs lost 2013 NBA finals to Miami in seven games. Performing under pressure, McGrady didn't really have a role on that Spurs team, playing just six of their 
21 playoff games in just four, in just 14 minutes in the finals. In his playoff appearance in the prime of his career with Orlando and Houston, he four times averaged better than 30 points per game. Overview, until he joined the San Antonio Spurs late in 2012-13 season, just in advance of the playoffs, McGrady's teams never won a single playoff series. As the number five seed in 2007, his Houston Rockets squad came close in Game 7 against Utah, losing 103-99. His other two chances in Game 7s were blowouts. McGrady made seven All-Star games and twice won the NBA scoring championship, but he never found a way to be part of a championship formula. Number 22, Randy Moss, Seasons 14. Super Bowl appearances 2007. Closest call. New England Patriots lost the Super Bowl to New York 17 14. Performing under pressure after a phenomenal 2007 regular season for the unbeaten Patriots, in which he led the NFL in touchdowns and caught 98 passes. Moss was muted in the postseason, only seven catches for 94 yards, including five for 62 in the Super Bowl. He did catch the six-yard touchdown pass that put New England ahead 14-10 with two minutes, 42 seconds remaining in the game, which the Giants overcame with a mesmerizing final drive. In 1998, when Moss was a rookie, he flourished in an offense with Randall Cunningham and QB. Moss caught 17 touchdowns and accumulated 1,313 yards receiving. The Vikes went 15-1 in the regular season and earned the NFC's number one seed. But in the NFC title game against Atlanta, he was held to 75 yards. Minnesota missed a chance to clinch the game on a missed 39-yard field goal and lost in overtime. So there were two great missed chances in a championship for a player who ranks fourth in career receiving yards and second in receiving TDs. Number 21 on that list. Warren Moon, 17 seasons. Super Bowl appearances, none. Closest call, Houston Oilers lost 1991 divisional playoffs to Denver. Performing under pressure, Moon compiled a 3-7 record in playoff games. He completed 64.3% of his passes, but managed only 17 touchdowns against 14 interceptions. He played a strong game in the 1992 Walker game against Buffalo, throwing for 371 yards on 36 of 50 passing, but the team failed to hold a 35-3 third-quarter lead. The overview. Moon had the disadvantage of not starting his NFL career until age 28. He was not considered quarterback material by NFL teams and so he began his career in Canada until eventually getting his shot with the Oilers. He led the league in completions three times and yards twice. All seven of his shots at the playoffs came after his 30th birthday. Marcel Donnie. Seasons 18, Stanley Cup appearances, none. Closest call, Los Angeles Kings lost West Division Finals to Vancouver in five games. Performing under pressure, Dion's teams missed the playoffs half the time. He never played more than 10 playoff games in the season and only 43 for his career. He scored 43 points in those games, including 20 goals, but was a, but was a cumulative minus 19 and only once finished as a plus player during a postseason run. Dion won the 1980 Art Rose Trophy as the league's leading scorer and finished with 1,171 points, the sixth highest total in NHL history. He is the only player in the top 10 who appeared in fewer than 100 playoff games. Who can forget John Stockton? Coming in at number 19 on this list is John Stockton. 
played 19 seasons, NBA final appearances 1997 and 1998. Closest call, Utah Jazz lost 1998 decisive game 6, 87-86. Performing under pressure, Stockton shot 495 from the field in his NBA Finals appearance and passed for an average of 8.8 assists. He was Utah's second leading scorer behind Carl Malone in the 1998 Finals. In the decisive game six that season, he managed only five assists and 10 points. His overview, Stockton played in 182 playoff games and averaged 10.1 assists 10 times, leading all playoff participants in assists average. His 1,839 assists are second only to Magic Johnson's 2,346, although LeBron James is closing in on Stockton. Upon his retirement, Stockton was the NBA's career assist leader, and no one still is, is within 3,700 of catching him. Coming in number 18 on that list, Bruce Smith, seasons, 19 seasons. Super Bowl appearances, 1990, 1991, 1992, and 1993. Closest call, Buffalo's lost Super Bowl's XXV 2019 when kicker Scott Norwood missed a game-ending 47-yard field goal. Performing under pressure against the Giants, Smith, Sacked QB Jeff Hostetler in the end zone to extend Buffalo's second quarter lead to 12-3. One of only two sacks he recorded in four Super Bowl appearances, but also just a fifth Super Bowl safety to that point. He also stopped back Otis Anderson for a two-yard loss when the Giants were going for it on fourth down in the third period, setting up Buffalo at his 37th to launch a score drive that gave the Bills a 19-17 lead. His overview, Smith appeared in 20 postseason games in his career. The last in 1999 against the Tennessee Titans. He recorded two and a half sacks in that game, bringing his playoff total to 14 and a half. He retired as the NFL sack leader with 211 Pro Bowl appearances. So what I am going to do right here, I am going to take a break. When I come back, I will do my best to complete this list. So stay tuned to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. This is your conductor, Anthony Smith, right back after these messages. Welcome back, and now we dive back into this list. And a name I mentioned in the earlier podcast of mine. And now that name comes up as number 17 on this list. This guy played 18 seasons. And before I give you all of his credentials, Lord have mercy. This guy would make me dizzy watching him because this guy could scramble with the. He is the original. I think he is the original scrambler. The average play at best, what? Four to seven seconds is the average length of a play. This guy seems like he could stretch a play out at least a good 30 seconds because of his ability to scramble. He's number 17 on his list. He played 18 seasons. He played in Super Bowl appearances in 1973, 74, and 76 seasons. The Minnesota Vikings lost Super Bowl IX to Pittsburgh 16-6. In his three Super Bowls, Tarkington never reached 200 yards passing, never threw a touchdown pass, was picked off five times, and completed just 16 passes on average. Oh, in case you didn't get that name, we're talking about friend Tarkington. Okay. His overview, 
Tarkington retired in 1978 as the NFL's career leader in passing yards for 47,003 yards, a figure that placed him more than 7,000 yards ahead of any contemporary and still ranks 11th all-time despite the game's increasing orientation toward the pass. In his greatest season, when he was named NFL MVP in 1975 and led the Vikings to a 12-2 record, they lost their first playoff game by a 17-14 score on Roger Starbeck's miracle pass to Drew Pearson with less than 30 seconds remaining. Number 16 on that list was Danian Tomlinson. Played 11 seasons, Super Bowl appearances, none. Closest call, San Diego Chargers lost the 2007 AFC Championship game to New England 21-12. Performing under pressure, matched against the undefeated Patriots one game removed from the Super Bowl, Tomlinson was unable to do more than attempt two runs and catch one pass because of a strained deligament that occurred in a road playoff win over the Indianapolis Colts. Overview Tomlinson appeared in 10 playoff games in his career, including a second AFC title game in his final season as a member of the Jets, and rushed for just 468 yards. His one great playoff game came against the Pats in 2006 when he rushed for 123 yards and caught passes for 64 more, but San Diego still fell 24 to 21. Number 15, Ernie Banks. Seasons 19, World Series appearances, none. Chicago Cubs led the National League East for 155 days, but went 18-7 in their final 25 games and lost a division to the New York Mets. Performing under pressure in 1969, the year the Cubs infamously flamed out in September, Banks hit only 208 and delivered two home runs in 96 at-bats. The following season, though, when they finished five games behind the Pirates, he hit 326 and delivered two home runs in only 46 at-bats. The overview. Banks played most of his career on terrible Cubs teams that finished a collective 452 and a half games out of first, but he was so great that he was named league MVP while twice playing for sub-500 teams. Only six of his teams finished with winning records, including the last five. Number 14, John Hanna, seasons 13, full appearances 1985. Lost the Super Bowl to Chicago 46-10. Performing under pressure, a running game that fueled New England's surge to the Super Bowl was wrecked by the vaunted Bears defense. But the Pats fell behind so quickly that there wasn't much chance to run, and the Pats weren't good enough at throwing the ball to make up for it. In 1985, AFC Championship game, what amounted to his last chance to reach a Super Bowl, Hannah was part of a line that ran over the Miami Dolphins for 255 yards with three backs led by Craig James rotating to ring up that rushing total. The Pats passed for only 72 yards and still won 31-14. He appeared in three postseasons before that final run without the Patriots winning a game. Number 13, Tony Gwynn, 20 seasons. World Series appearance, 1984-1998. San Diego Padres lost the 1984 World Series in five games. Gwen banded 500 in his second trip to the series in 1998, but the Padres were swept that October by the Yankees. In his first trip, he hit 263, but did not drive home or score a run. One of baseball's greatest pure hitters, Gwen played his entire career with the Padres and helped deliver the franchise's greatest moments, including their NLCS victories over the Cubs and Braves. He batted 306 and scored 11 runs in 27 postseason games. Number 12, guy known as The Answer, or AI, Allen Iverson, 
14 seasons. NBA Finals 2001. Closest call. Philadelphia 76ers lost NBA Finals to Los Angeles in five games. Iverson delivered a tour de force in the Sixers' surprising game one road victory over the favorite Lakers, scoring 48 points, passing for six assists, and pulling off five steals. For the series, he averaged 35.6 points and 5.6 rebounds, though he stood only six foot. Iverson was ne- Iverson never was fortunate enough to play on great teams. The eight-man rotation for the Sixers team he carried to the finals contained only one other player, center Dikembe Mutombo, who scored more than 8,000 career points. And Mutombo, 34 years old that season, in his eight playoff appearances, Iverson averaged 29.7 points. Number 11, Brad Park. 17 seasons, Stanley Cup appearances, 1972, 1977, and 1978. Closest call, New York Rangers lost 1972 Stanley Cup. Pinalto, Boston in six games. After being traded to the Boston Bruins, Park led the team in scoring in both 1977 and 1978 final, averaging more than a point per game. One of the forgotten greats of North American sports, Park was the runner-up for the Norris Trophy as the NHL's best defenseman on eight occasions, principally because his career coincided with those of Bobby Orr and Dennis Potvin. Park produced 125 <clears throat> 25 points in 161 playoff games and was a plus 24 in the polls in the postseason. Number 10, Ken Griffey Jr. Seasons 22, World Series appearances, none. Closest call, Seattle Mariners lost 1995 league championship to Cleveland in six games. Griffey hit 363 with six home runs in the 1995 postseason when the Mariners eliminated the New York Yankees in the division series and then fell to the Indians short of the World Series. Griffey's brilliance in his first decade in Seattle when he was among the most versatile stars the game has ever seen collapsed up under collapsed upon his trade to Cincinnati in advance of the 2000 season. After reaching the postseason twice with the Mariners, he played for only one winning team with the Reds. He made the playoffs one more time after a midseason trade to the Chicago White Sox in 2008, but batted a meager 188 in four games. Number nine, the round mound rebound. Sir Charles, often referred to by Shaq as Chuck, talking about none other than Charles Barkley. He played 16 seasons. NBA appearance finals, 1993. Closest call, Phoenix Suns lost decisive game six, 99 to 98. Barkley averaged 27.3 points and 13 rebounds in his only finals appearance and shot 476 from the field. He scored 21 points and got 17 rebounds in the deciding game. Barkley averaged 23 points and 12.9 rebounds in 123 career playoff games, both figures higher than his career averages. His postseason figures are depressed a bit by his final seasons with the Rock with Houston Rockets. In his playoff prime with Phoenix, he was dominant, a dominant player 26.5 points and 13.1 rebounds, but only that first Suns team was good enough to reach the finals. Number eight, Dan Marino played 17 seasons, Super Bowl appearance 1984. Miami Dolphins lost to the San Francisco, lost to San Francisco 38-16 in the Super Bowl, performing under pressure. Marino was 29 of 50 for 318 yards and one touchdown, but threw two interceptions in his one Super Bowl appearance. He compiled an 8 and 10 record in playoff games and threw 24 interceptions 
against 32 touchdowns, far under his regular season ratio of 252 of 252 interceptions and 420 TDs. It often is said that porous defense prevented Marino's regular season brilliance from carrying over into postseason success. And most of Miami's postseason losses during his career featured big points totals from the opposition, an average of 34.5 per defeat. Number seven, Anthony Munoz. 13 seasons, Super Bowl appearance 1981 and 1988. Cincinnati Bengals lost 20-16 in the Super Bowl. It's rather a challenge to gauge a lineman's performance without extensive film study, but the Bengals did struggle to move the ball in the Super Bowl, producing only 229 yards of offense and allowing five sacks of quarterback Boomer Isaacson. They were statistically better in their next Super Bowl appearance against the Niners, outgaining them by 81 yards. Munoz was at the core of the greatest stretch of football in the Bengals' history, leading them twice to Super Bowl appearances in which they had opportunities to win. He is considered by many the greatest offensive lineman in the game's history, with 11 Pro Bowl appearances and 9 selections as All-Pro. Number six on that list. Dick Buckus, seasons nine. Championship, Super Bowl appearances, none. Closest call, finished nine and five, two games behind conference leaders in 1965. Buckus and fellow rookie Gail Sayers were given much of the credit for the 1965 team's resurgence from an 0-3 start to a third-place finish. Despite Buckus' brilliance at the center of the Bears' defense, injuries to Sayers and general organizational decline kept him far from contention for postseason success. That 1965 season was as good as it ever would get for Buckus in terms of team success. Even as he was selected to eight Pro Bowls, he played in only one more, played on only one more winning team before retiring after 1973 so what I'm going to do right here is I have the top five on that list coming up but what I'm going to do is I am going to take a break and when I come back I will give you the remaining five on that list and probably put a bow on this show so stay tuned it is the a train sports talk podcast with your conductor Anthony Smith. I will be right back after these messages from after this message from my sponsor. And we welcome you back for the final segment of this final episode of this podcast we are looking at the 25 greatest athletes to never win a championship 25 greatest athletes to never win a championship so I know the intrigue is getting there because some of you that listen to this are probably like okay I know such and such is on this I know this guy has to be on this list well why come this guy didn't Hey, 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 hey. Let me do my due diligence and come back with my own. This one here is courtesy of Sporting News. So it is what it is, okay? So let's just have some fun with this. But now we're going to round out. Five greatest athletes to never win the championship. So we start with number five and Ed Williams. Played 19 seasons, World Series appearance 1946. His closest call was with the Boston Red Sox, lost Game 7 to St. Louis Cardinals 4-3. In his only World Series, Williams batted 230 at bats, did not hit a home run, and drove in only a single run. He was 0-4 in the decisive game. In Williams's 
experience. He lost three prime years fighting in World War II. The Red Sox came off winning 92 games in 1942, albeit nine games behind the powerhouse Yankees, and then plunged toward the bottom of the American League with Williams absent. His return and MVP performance took them to the series for the only time in his career, but despite a string of successful seasons, the Sox never again overtook the Yankees, who won nine pennants in a 10-year stretch. Uh, excuse me, could you go check the mail for me real quick? Yes, number four, Carl Malone, a.k.a. the mailman. Seasons, 19. Closest call, Utah Jazz lost 1998 decisive game 6, 87-86. Struggled a bit from the field in the first finals appearance, but converted at a 5-0-4 clip in his second time round. Averaged 25 points, 10.5 rebounds and 3.8 assists in the 1998 Finals. Overall, Malone averaged 24.7 points and 10.7 rebounds in 193 career playoff games. But the other team in 1997 and 1998 had a guy by the name of MJJ, known as Michael Jeffrey Jordan. He did a bit of ring chasing in his final season and joined the Lakers of Kobe Shaq in 2003-2004, along with the great Gary Payton. But the marriage of the two stars was dysfunctional by that point, and neither Malone nor Payton had his fastball any longer. Number three. Maybe a little bit controversial for him to be on this list, but he's made the list at number three. Barry Bonds played 22 seasons, World Series appearance 2002, closest call, San Francisco Giants lost 2002 World Series, Game 7, 4-1. Batted 471 and produced astronomical 1.994 OPS in his long World Series, but hit just 196 in his first five postseason, postseason appearances. Bonds' greatest chance at escaping inclusion on this list was wrecked when the San Francisco Giants blew a 5-0 lead they held entering the bottom of the seventh inning in Game 6 against the Anaheim Angels. Earlier in his career, he felt similar frustration in 1992 when his Pittsburgh Pirates held a 2-0 lead in the bottom of the ninth of the NLCS but lost to Atlanta. That time, he'd done little to contribute to his team's success, and he appeared to field the ball and have an opportunity to throw out the winning run. He failed, obviously. Number two, Mr. Highlight Reel himself played 10 seasons. Super Bowl appearance, none. Closest call, lost in the 1991 NFC Championship game, 41-10. Who are we talking about? Barry Sanders. Rushed 11 times for 44 yards in the 1991 NFL title game. Ran for 169 yards in 1992 playoff game against Green Bay, but the Lions fell 28-24. Overall, averaged 64 yards in six playoff games. The Lions are mostly known for their futility as a modern franchise. as one of the few teams in the NFL that still has not appeared in a Super Bowl. Sanders helped deliver what was easily the team's best run of the Super Bowl era. With five playoff appearances during his decade as a player, compared with just seven in the other 42 years combined. But it's difficult for a single player to change a team's fortune, unless that player is a quarterback. And number one. Number one. Seasons 24, World Series appearances 1907, 1908, and 1909. Closest call, Detroit Tigers lost 1909 World Series, Game 7, 8-0. Who are we talking about? None other than Ty Cobb. Bat 262 in three World Series, nearly 100 points under career average, hit 231 in 1909 series, punctuated by an 0-4 day in the deciding game. Cobb is considered one of the greatest hitters of all time, but he was unable to push the Detroit Lions 
to the mountaintop during more than two decades with the team. It wasn't as though he was blameless. In his three World Series, the only one in which he stood out was 1908 when he hit 368 and compiled a .821 OPS. But that was a postseason in which his Tigers were not competitive, losing in five games and being shut out in the last two. Cobb is not one of baseball's most popular historical figures. It's surprising his lack of ring isn't added more often in the criticism. So there you have it. 25 of the greatest athletes to never win a championship. To never win a championship. Intriguing as it is, hope you find this very entertaining and very thoughtful to know. Because some of those names you're probably like, wow, I hadn't heard that name in a long time. I didn't know this guy didn't win a championship. I was talking to a guy at my job just the other day. And he wasn't aware that Fran Tarkenton didn't win the Super Bowl. Damn, no, Dan Marino. I'm like, yep, Dan Marino only played in one. And he didn't get to win that one. So, some of these names might surprise you as to who came up short in their quest for a ring. Well, that brings this episode to an end. I hope you enjoyed it. Leave me your feedback. Tell me what you think. I'll be glad to hear from you. Because. I'm doing this because I enjoy it. I do this because I like entertaining people. Which is why I call my show the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. I have some people to thank for that name, which I will get them on eventually when I'm being Scott Styles. He used to be on the show called The Game Plan. He's no longer on there, but he is still my friend. And he has said I can call him anytime and he will come on. Because I got another buddy named Rick Thomas. His show called Running the Table. Yes, I'm putting the plug in for these guys. Anything about racing you want to know, ask Scott Styles. Anything you want to know about anything, ask Rick Thomas and Running the Table. I had the pleasure of having him on here. But Scott is coming up and he's coming up real soon. That's only, about, that's only though because I came through on the bet. Let me say this in my closing out. Scott Styles is a Cleveland Browns fan. He is. Let that be known. On any given day, you could find him at uh, Quincy's watching the Cleveland Browns if the game is on TV. I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. I made a bet. I was just pretty sure that Dallas could beat Cleveland. Well, I lost the bet. I owe him a baller, Captain Morgan, which I have. So now it's not until after I show him, hey, I got your Captain Morgan. He's telling me I can call him anytime. This is me getting jabbing at a friend. Friends can do that, okay? But yes, I look forward to when they having Scott on the show. And as I said in the earlier parts of this podcast, I'm also looking to reach out to uh, Mike Kennedy. He has told me to reach him directly. So we look to get him on. But until the next time, take care of yourself and each other and have a blessed day. This is the A-Train. Signing off.